The Tom Woods Show, episode 1557. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you enjoy my smackdowns of crazy people, then you'll really enjoy my ebook, Sane Space Libertarian Dispatches from Bizarro America. Even better, it don't cost you nothing. Go pick up a copy at sanespacebook.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. I am very glad to have on the program today the great Scott Horton. I mean, is there a libertarian in the world who does not love Scott Horton? I don't want to know, frankly. Scott is a tremendous hero when it comes to foreign policy, knows more than everybody put together about pretty much everything. And, of course, you may know, he is the author of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, which is such a good book, I can't even begin to describe it to you. Uh, he's also, for a long time, uh, been part of the editorial team, headed it up at antiwar.com, uh, directs the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org, and of course is the host of The Scott Horton Show, and you can check him out at scotthorton.org. I wanted to have him on to talk to us about what we learned in this Washington Post expose, I guess you could call it, that is being referred to as the, or at least the, let's say, the batch of documents as the Afghanistan Papers. So obviously calling to mind the Pentagon Papers from the Vietnam War. And the sum total of what we learned from these papers is, well, actually, there, it turns out there are a bunch of things, but the primary one is that this war has been prosecuted with a heavy dose of domestic propaganda. That is to say, they've carried it on with assurances that were certainly false about how well it was going for the sake of consumption at home, to keep people quiet at home, that progress is being made and this and that. And we now know this is just not true on any level. And I have a funny feeling Scott Horton already knew this before this dump of information came out. And I actually intend to ask him about that how much of this could we have known by just reading Scott Horton's book and how much of this is really brand new? So important stuff. Of course, I'll link to the post article at tomwoods.com slash 1557. Scott, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. You would think that a bombshell like this, I guess it's not, you know, it's not really a bombshell in that we all kind of knew it, but it is a bombshell by establishment standards, certainly, that there'd be a lot more outrage. And it's like no one even cares. It's like we all sort of knew that this had to be what was going on. And of course the impeachment is going on and I suppose that's taking people's attention away. But I think that it's just the mainstream, they just don't care. That's my impression. They just don't care. Am I wrong? Has there been a huge tidal wave of outrage that I miss? And I'm not even saying that sarcastically. Maybe there was. Well, you know, I don't watch TV news, honestly. So, but no, I mean, I think impeachment itself did a lot to drown this out. I read a quote in The Hill where a guy said that the Pentagon Papers back in the Vietnam War landed on essentially a tinderbox soaked with gasoline that went up in flames. In this case, it's like a match landed on some wet grass. But, you know, and, yeah. and you know, there, there's a piece in The Hill, too, about, you know, why the silence. And the answer is because it doesn't fit anyone's partisan narrative. It's half Bush's fault and it's half Obama's fault. And, you know, one-eighth Trumps or something. So Right. And so it's very hard to find people who really despise the entire regime, like you and me. There you go. And so it's everything has got to be a partisan fight. And, you know, can you believe what some stupid person said 
is so easy to do compared to really learning and knowing about a thing right. and being upset about that. And you can always find some idiot said some outrageous thing to cite and talk about. And so that's where everybody tends to go all the time, of course. But, you know, you'd have to say something homophobic about the war in Afghanistan to get anybody to notice, I guess. To get anybody to care. I and mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, death is not enough for these people. Death, it's just ridiculous. All right, start off by telling us the nature of what this dump of documents basically is. What exactly did the Washington Post accomplish here? Okay, so there's an organization called SIGAR, S-I-G-A-R, which is the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. And I think he doesn't even work for state or DOD. I think he's just like the roving inspector general for the Afghan war. And it's the same guy, John Sopko, for many years in a row now. And he's done a really great job on a lot of things. And this was a lessons learned project where they went and interviewed like 400 people who had been involved in the war, you know, State Department and DOD mostly, right? And so this is sort of their after action report about, geez, how come things didn't work out so well? And the era is about 2015, 2016, on the interviews here. And there's a little bit of finger pointing, but mostly because they're being interviewed and the idea is no one's ever going to know their names. This part isn't going to be published. Uh, you know, other government people might see it, but the public won't see it was the idea behind it. And so they're, you know, somewhat frank about it. And it's, it's just interviews. There's hundreds of them. And I've gone through a couple of dozen so far. And there's already been a bunch of stories written about what's in there. But essentially what it is, is it's the leaders of the war, including people like Douglas Lute, who is at the very top or, you know, in the White House, a general, the war czar, or somebody like Ryan Crocker, who was the ambassador under Obama. And uh, Mike Flynn, of course, famously McChrystal's right-hand man during the Obama surge, and then later Trump's first national security advisor before he was pretty much entrapped by the FBI and run out of office. And Essentially, it's them admitting that the whole project is a big, stupid project. I mean, Tom, honestly, if I said to you, imagine a bunch of interviews with a bunch of American government employees trying to explain why their project to remake the nation of Afghanistan didn't quite work out. This is pretty much exactly what you would imagine. You know, if anything, I'm disappointed that nobody seems very mean or nefarious or premeditated in their malevolence here. They're just exactly the kind of ridiculous boobs that you would think that they are. You know, Ryan Crocker at the end of his whole thing, he's going on and on about how all we did was build up all this corruption and empower these horrible murderous warlords and the army and the police we trained up were terrible criminals when they show up at all. And then he ends, I swear, here's the quote he says, you're, he's talking to the inspector general staff here. He says, you're doing important work and I hope to God it will inform you know, the next set of nation building experiences. And so there you go. I mean, it's just the lessons learned here are that we need to be a little bit more careful when we, you know, and tinker around the edges of our plans a little bit the next time. But see, now that raises another question because it seems as if we're also detecting in this dump of material, there was general confusion among a lot of people, as to really what the goal was. What what exactly are they trying to accomplish there? Is it A, B, or C? Is it A, B, and C? So what what are the different things they claimed that they were doing? And half the time they claimed they weren't doing, but they obviously were. 
Right. Well, so they're trying, I mean, the project is make a strong central democratic government for the country of Afghanistan. That's the project. And then so that includes pacification of any insurgent resistance. It includes trying to build up governors to be, you know, the strong rulers of, you know, the several states essentially in the Afghan Union, uh, in the provincial capitals there, and try to create to build up an army, to build up a police force, different police forces, uh, to create a parliamentary system, to build a an economy, a 21st century economy, dams and hydroelectric plants and hospitals and schools for little girls, Lord knows, and everything, Tom, everything. And so as some of them complain in here, yeah, I mean, part of it was they had so many missions, they had no mission. There was no key strategy underlying anything. Essentially, it's just make work for government employees. And you have as many different departments as possible. You have all kinds of people from the Department of Agriculture who are coming and saying, oh, we're going to teach you how to grow, you know, cumeric or whatever. I don't know the names of spices. Uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to redo everything. And then so, of course, nothing gets done at all. And meanwhile, the primary task, of course, is just basic security, which means in their eyes, creating a monopoly centralized power out of the capital city of Kabul which was just impossible. And as I explained in the book, essentially what's happened, and this is a vast oversimplification, but it's still true, essentially, is we have a coalition of 20% minorities, the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, and the Hazaras. And they have this Northern Alliance coalition that we support in the capital city. And they are fighting an insurgency by 40% of the population. The plurality population are the Pashtuns. And mostly their only political leadership are the Taliban. Whatever politicians, whatever Pashtun politicians have ingratiated themselves inside the government doesn't translate into Pashtun representation in the government in any way. It just means that worse warlords closer to home now have even more power because they've made an agreement with Kabul for guns and money and more power. And so they're just tyrannized. And so it's not that the Taliban represent justice necessarily, but at least they're not puppets of foreign powers. And well, <laughs> actually sort of Pakistan, uh, but you know, essentially they are indigenous power helping the people resist a foreign occupation. And so, uh, and a sort of, foreign government being foisted on them from the north of the country. And so, um, you know, in, in Iraq War II, Tom, America took the side of the 60% Shiite Arab supermajority in alliance with the 20% Kurds against the Sunni Arabs, essentially. So that was horrible and bloody, but at the end of the day, it worked. And America succeeded in installing Iran's friends in power and getting kicked right out of the country. But they did help the supermajority win the civil war. It was the supermajority. Here we're fighting for a coalition of minorities against the plurality. So, you know, it's just not working. It hasn't worked this whole time. And also, look, you know, people, when they say geopolitics, it sounds like some goofball just trying to sound smart, right? Like, what does that just mean? International politics? It took me forever to finally figure this out. It actually means geography politics. In other words, 
it really matters which way the pipeline goes, which way the river flows, who has access to which port, and this kind of thing has a lot to do with the politics. And that's what that really means. So you had the geopolitics of American forces in Central Asia as supposedly some bogus balance against Russia, China, Iran, et cetera, which is a joke anyway. But you also just think of the geopolitics of Afghanistan itself. It's a country the size of Texas, which if you've ever been to Texas or flown over Texas or anything, you understand is there's a reason it was its own sovereign republic there for a while. It's the size of Texas. It's completely landlocked. It's a couple hundred miles from the Indian Ocean, but it's landlocked behind a mountain range. You have to go all the way up to the Khyber Pass to get your trucks down into Afghanistan. And it's got deserts like California and mountains like Colorado and a population that likes to fight and has rifles. Anyone could have told you, AKA me, I could have told you, I did in September of 2001, October of 2001, this is never going to work. Trying to take over this country, remake this country, install a new government, defeat the tribal, you know, pacify the local population there. You're crazy to try. Look what happened to the Russians. And that's the real lesson here is that bin Laden learned the lesson with the help of the Americans in the 1980s. If you just get a superpower to invade Afghanistan, they will bankrupt themselves and destroy themselves trying to pacify this wild land. It was a smart plan when Walter Slocum and Zbigniew Brzezinski said, let's bait the Soviets into invading Afghanistan. We'll give them their own Vietnam. It made perfect sense and it worked. Bin Laden said, we'll do the same thing to you and gave Bush the opportunity to exploit. I'm not saying Bush was an innocent victim in this. He was given a crisis to exploit and he fell for it exactly the same way that the Soviets did and has driven his country into the ground. And of course, if Afghanistan was Bin Laden's you know, magic wish come true, then what does that mean for all the rest of the regime change wars across the Middle East? But that's another day. Well, of course, one of these small goals is to build up some kind of an Afghan security force, police and army, that'll be able to sustain itself when Americans leave. And surely this is also a reason for people drawing a Vietnam comparison, because supposedly that was what Nixon was trying to do, mm. was to Vietnamize the, uh, the conflict. And it looks like that also, <laughs> to say the least, did not make a whole lot of progress. You read the, the testimonies of some of these Americans about you know, what they thought of the the Afghan police force, for example. It's not particularly flattering. And so the whole thing then winds up being a matter of manipulating the metrics. And the, when you read this thing, you, you read uh, testimonials of people saying, we tried everything. We tried violence levels. We tried, uh, you know, they just listed all the possible ways in which progress might be made. And they just could not get the numbers to work somehow. But yet still they were able to somehow take this dog's breakfast and manipulate it in such a way that it seemed somehow not quite as hopeless as it really was. Yeah, well, you know, it's a funny thing because that kind of propaganda, it's just like in the book 1984, where all the worst propaganda is for the members of the party. All the regular, you know, people out there, they don't know or care much. And if they see through the lies, it doesn't matter much. But to the people with the power, they're the ones who have to believe. And so that's where you see, you know, like in the Obama years, this fad 
of counterinsurgency. And it was just like any other ridiculous fad that happens in society over a pop star or some TV show everybody's watching together or something like this. And we get all caught up in this idea, oh, yeah, no, we're going to do this big counterinsurgency. And David Trace knows what to do. And, of course, at the heart of it is building up this army. What's up? You're talking about this extremely poor country where the literacy rate is just completely in the dumps, where people join the army to get a rifle and a pair of shoes, and then they leave. And they might come back for another rifle and another pair of shoes. There's no way to keep them there. And where the whole system is so corrupt, the way the cash is paid out, that the commanders all have an interest in pretending that all of their AWOL soldiers are still there because they get to cash all their checks and keep all the money themselves. So you have entire divisions of ghost soldiers that never existed. You have years worth of effort of training up an army that barely shows up. And then when they do, they don't really have the support or the capability and oftentimes they get completely overmatched and killed by the Taliban, who seem to just set off a truck bomb out front of a base. Ten guys go in, kill everybody and leave. Happens all the time. And you know what happened in Pensacola last week, which first of all was blowback. I wrote an article about this at antiwar.com where I transcribed the guy's entire statement. It was nothing to do with religious extremism and everything to do with political extremism. But that was... Yeah, it was a terrorist attack, but it was also, you could call it, it was a green on blue attack, right? It was what they call an insider attack, where the guys that we train turn around and stab our trainers in the back. You know, our Marines that fight in Helmand province right now, they have guardian angel snipers on towers all throughout their base because they're afraid that the men that they're training might turn around and kill them at any moment. So they have to have snipers on 24-hour patrol guarding the the trainers, protecting the trainers from the people they're training. And this happens not just to, you know, Americans have been killed. Many Americans have been killed in these insider attacks, but the Afghan army is incredibly susceptible to them. And this just happened two days ago. Insider attack kills 25. New York Times had a great thing about it. This is propaganda, Voice of America. Same difference, though, it's true. And what happened was this Either he was a Taliban infiltrator in the first place or he was just some guy who took the opportunity. We don't really know, but you know, probably was recruited by the Taliban to do it. Went in there, joined the army, ingratiated himself long enough to win everybody's trust. And then when everyone was asleep in the middle of the night, he took an AK-47 and he massacred at least 25 of them. As They claimed as many as 32. Then he took all the guns and all the ammo from the base and took off with and, and gave it all over to the Taliban. This is the army that America has built up there is, you know, they there's no reason for these people to be loyal to it. The only reason they're showing up at all is a paycheck, you know, and um, and it's easy enough for the enemy to exploit. And, you know, I want to emphasize, I say this in the book, too, that I don't think that everything would be fine if America leaves. I think we should leave anyway. But I think you know, essentially there's no choice. And if we have the same conversation in 10 years or in 20 years from now, the reality is, yeah, when we leave the people whose power we've been propping up, it's due for a correction and they're going to have a crash. You know, when American paper money and army troops are no longer propping up their corporate power, however you define it there, there's going to be a crash. There's going to be worse conflict. And there are a lot of, you know, real rock and a hard place decisions that have to be made by the Afghan government 
the same was that the Americans, you know, have been along with them in making hard choices. For example, what do you do with all these warlords and, and former Taliban guys? On one hand, you could have made deals with them all along. They do talk about that in these papers, surprisingly. How I don't know if they talk about Haqqani deliberately, you know, specifically. They talk about how much of the Taliban government surrendered and offered to negotiate and join the new government on its terms and that kind of thing. And America turned them all away, took them off to Guantanamo to be tortured or whatever, treated them as the enemy no matter what, even in their total acquiescence. But see, what's the opposite of that? Allow all these horrible war criminals to come and join in the government? Like Gubaldin Hekmachar, who actually did make a peace deal a couple of years ago. So far, it seems to have worked out okay. And he brought in a large part of his militia, the Hisbi Islami, in from the cold and kind of joined the government there. But maybe he's just too old to be a genocidal dictator anymore. But that guy's got the blood of 100,000 innocent people on his hands from the Civil War of the 1990s and has been, you know, a pretty much implacable enemy against the Americans up until two years ago um, in the war. So, there are real questions of so you have a guy like General Dostum, who was a communist who worked for the Soviets in the 80s and who was a war criminal uh, who murdered thousands of Afghans right under the nose of the American Green Berets, under the watchful eye, I should say, of the Green Berets in northern Afghanistan in 2001. I forgot where it was exactly. But anyway, um, this guy's a horrible war criminal and he's been the vice president and has been the defense minister. And um, uh, one of the warlords before him was a terrible communist warlord who was vice president and defense minister before Dostum. But so then the question is, do you bring these guys into the government and try to channel their violence through compromise and through the government institutions while giving them immunity for horrible crimes that they've committed? And is that really better to channel their violence through the government, which after all is capable of mass violence? Or you know what I mean? These are the kinds of decisions that the Americans must stop making um, because they are each and every one of them. It's a deal with the devil either way. You prefer war to compromise with a bad guy, you know, but the Afghans have to work this out without us. The Americans have proven that they're completely incapable of picking and choosing winners here. And, and look at the last election. They just had a bogus election that they're still fighting over right now. They had to create a whole new post-constitutional ad hoc co-presidency system to keep Ghani and Abdullah from killing each other the last time. And they're already accusing each other of stealing the election this time. The thing is a disaster, Tom. I'm sorry to say that there's not a, as, as Bob Murphy could tell you about the crash in 08, there's not a soft landing here, okay? You create a bunch of new money to try to pad the crash. All you're doing is creating the situation for further distortion, and further disruption and dislocation and crashes down the line. It's the same thing here. We're 20 years into this now almost. It's the same thing. I got the question to ask you as a guy who wrote what we generally think of as the book on Afghanistan. I'm going to ask you that after this quick break. All right, folks, life hack time here. We all have too many books to read. What are we going to do about reading them all? Well, that's why Blinkist, the wonderful app, is so helpful because it distills thousands of nonfiction books down to precisely the 15 minutes worth of information you really need and that you can read or listen to. In an hour's commute, I will have listened to or consumed the equivalent of four books. 
And in fact, driving is when I use Blinkist the most because I'm always driving my daughter somewhere and then what am I going to do on the way home? I'll use Blinkist and I can get a book or two under my belt. My recommendations for your first books would be The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss and also Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods, try it for free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com woods, to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Woods. Scott, as everybody knows, is the author of Fool's Errand, which is about the war in Afghanistan. And what I want to know is, you know more about the war in Afghanistan than basically anybody in America. I mean, the number of people who know more than you, it's like a rounding error. Basically nobody. So my question is, how much of what we learn from this Washington Post expose it's just confirmation of what we already knew, was already sitting there in plain sight. Was there anything that you learned from this that was brand new to you? Or is this stuff that, in a way, you kind of already anticipated in your book? Well, first of all, a lot of people know a lot more about Afghanistan than I do. I'm not a real But, but I mean, imagine the, the I mean, percentage we're talking about, though, right? I mean, it's pretty small. That's my point. Okay, but I want to be fair to people who, you know— uh, have been in the war, have been, you know, in one capacity or the other, real journalists who've risked their lives over there and stuff. I stayed home in Texas the whole time. All I was was right about it all along. But I don't speak the language and I have not risked my life over there. And I did not go and do like firsthand real journalism where I interviewed a hundred Afghans myself and this kind of thing. The book is my best take on the on the war, and I, I'm glad that people have uh, appreciated it. I'm glad that you appreciate it. But I want to make sure that, you know, I don't want to claim that I'm a black belt in this stuff when I'm really not. I, I don't want it to sound like I'm pretending that I'm something that I'm not. Um, but as far as your real question here about what's in there, no. I mean, I have to say that what I learned from this story in the Washington Post essentially is that I didn't miss anything. But essentially it's all there. The corruption the uh, impossibility of the mission and the, you know, a lot of the different individual circumstances. Of course, as I read through, you know, there are some small details. There was one point where I thought, oh, you know what? I don't think I ever really wrote about that warlord. And then I read a little further and I went, oh yeah, I did. That was the warlord that stole everything from the military hospital and let all those guys die gangrene and all of that stuff for the money. And oh, he was the defense minister. Yes, of course. Can you imagine if Donald Rumsfeld or, uh, you know, Leon Panetta stole all the medicine from Walter Reed and just sold it himself for his own greed. <laughs> I mean, I know America is really corrupt, but our guys find more sophisticated ways of cashing in than just outright stealing antibiotics from the maimed and dying in the military hospital. You know, these are the kinds of guys America put in power there. So, yeah, no, sad to say, Tom that all I've seen so far is confirmation of what I told you all along. You know, Scott, also, there were just so many just isolated facts in here that are interesting. Like, for example, I'm reading this. One unidentified contractor told government interviewers he was expected to dole out $3 million daily for projects in a single Afghan district roughly the size of a U.S. county. He once asked a visiting congressman 
whether this congressman himself could responsibly spend that kind of money back home. He said, hell no. Well, sir, that's what you just obligated us to spend, and I'm doing it for communities that live in mud huts with no windows. So the, obviously the prospects for corruption are through the roof. I mean, yeah. even, even worse than usual. Yeah, there's one in there about a uh, translator and not a particularly good translator who, when he first started the job, said, uh, you know, this this colonel or this lieutenant colonel or captain or whoever, he needs a thing done and how much, you know, to get that done. And the guy said $200 and he said $20,000, the translator. And the American officer says, sure, no problem. Hands over $20,000. And this guy pays the local Afghan the $200 that he was charging and he keeps the rest for himself. Well, he did this over and over again. He's now a banker and one of the very richest men in Afghanistan. And that was where he made all his money was just mistranslating and just pocketing all the cash that the CIA and the military <laughs> were just shoveling at him. Oh my God. He's one of the richest men in the country now. All right. That reminds me of Dave Smith's routine about the, uh, the fake sign language translator from Nelson yeah. Mandela's funeral. <laughs> All right, uh, I want to ask you a couple of things somewhat unrelated to this. Uh, the first one has to do with our friend Jacob Hornberger, whom we like for the uh, LP presidential nomination. And Scott, you have, of course, been an outspoken supporter of Hornberger uh, and, and really a supporter of his before he threw his hat into the ring. I mean, you've, you know, uh, you and I have known of his work for a long time and you've been close with him for a long time and you've been saying that you know he's a really outstanding representative of our point of view so any let's say developments from the front well i can tell you that he's having a great time doing this already he's you know really working hard traveling all around i think you know he has one big project is to try to win the primary in uh, north carolina but he's got all kinds of irons in the fire He's got a guy named Jake Porter, uh, who he's hired to be his campaign manager, who I talked to for a little while and seems like he's just great and really knows his stuff, too. And I've also heard, Tom, that your audience and Dave Smith's audience and my audience uh, have been joining the Libertarian Party in huge numbers. It's more than a thousand, but that was a couple of weeks ago. And that was just a couple of weeks into this. So. Uh, I know we brought in more than a thousand people into the LP already. And so one, I'm extremely grateful for that. And I will reiterate that you got to do the work, everybody. Ron Paul revolution levels of dedication to doing the work to get the job as delegate to the national convention. And the rules are different in the different states. But, you know, Michael Heiss from the Mises caucus can help you. He's on Facebook. He's easy to find. And whatever state you're in, he can tell you whatever rules you need to know, how to go to your state convention, how to get yourself and your wife and your best friend and your father-in-law all elected to be delegates to the national convention. Scott, let me interrupt really you counts. right there. What I'll do is um, Michael has actually written a couple of in-depth blog posts along the lines of you've joined, what's the next step? And I will just link to those directly Great. on our show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1557. Is where people should go. All right, so go ahead. Yeah, and uh, man, I just have to say I'm getting just pure positive feedback from everybody about this. Everybody's so excited. Everybody, you know, we've really wanted to have a Ron Paul revolution to participate in, and here we've got one. And one advantage that we have over Ron, even though we're not running in the 
for a major party nomination and getting that level of attention right off the bat in a way that he was able to do by whooping on Rudy Giuliani a little bit and stuff like that. We're going to be in the general all the way to the end, all the way to November. And there is such an opportunity to create a ruckus there on behalf of freedom and peace around here. And it's just going to be so great. Already, It already is great. And he's already doing, you know, creating a, a huge reaction and getting people really excited. And so it's the holidays now, but right after the new year, we've got a huge mission till May to make sure he gets the nomination. And then, you know what I mean, Tom? It's like this. What if you were born a billionaire? You know, like look at Michael Bloomberg spending all this money on TV ads and saying, look at me. Nobody cares about him anyway. But look at the level of influence he's able to have on the debate just from being that rich. Well, this is like we're billionaires. This is our chance to have that much influence on the debate where we can really move the margin in this country toward freedom with this massive public relations stunt, this massive speaking tour on behalf of peace and liberty, just like Ron Paul did. And I know it's gonna work. It's, it's already working. It's already great. It's gonna be even greater. And please help everyone. Let's do it. All right, so here's the, here's the deal here. Uh, a lot of people don't care about the LP one way or the other. The way I look at it is, as I've said, they have L in their name. They have the word libertarian. This is the exposure anybody's going to get to libertarianism, almost anybody. And this is what people are going to think of when they think of libertarianism. So if the LP is a train wreck, it reflects badly on all of us. And it's not that difficult for us to put this thing right because when Scott says a thousand of our people have already joined, you may think, ah, oh, that's a drop in the bucket. Not for a party that has fewer than 15,000 members. <laughs> no way. Uh, you know, you get a couple more thousand and right off the bat, that means 20% basically of the membership comes directly from us and a big chunk of the remaining 80% is highly sympathetic or would have joined through us if they'd had the chance. Right. So, so that's a big deal. And here, this is, in a sense, is some kind of weird outsider putsch where all these people are joining the party and we, we're hoisting this guy on our shoulders and we're going to try to force him into the nomination slot. But it's Hornberger, who already is an old LP guy from back in the day who has a thousand friends in the LP all across the country already. Everybody loves Jacob Hornberger. Rockwell loves Hornberger and Cato loves Hornberger. Everybody loves him. There's nobody to fight about with Hornberger. He's everybody's friend and for good reason. He's a perfect libertarian on everything. And he writes every single day. You can read him at fff.org. Every single day he's on it. I mean, this is a guy worth getting behind. This isn't like, eh, good enough, I guess, let's try it. This is Jacob Hornberger, man. So what we've been doing, or at least my folks have been doing, is uh, I have a link, because you can actually join the Libertarian Party through my link. And if you join through my link, you don't even have to include anything in the memo. And don't don't include anything belligerent like, I'm joining to oust such and such. I mean, you know, come on now, right? You don't have to include anything in the memo because the fact that you're joining through my link says everything you want to say, right? That already says it. So as you would expect, it's tomwoods.com slash LP. So go there, join the Libertarian Party. Doesn't cost you very much. And let's do something with it. Let's do something with this thing. Instead of sitting on the sidelines saying, Jeez, they keep coming up with um, washed-up Republicans. And I'm, here I'm more thinking Bob Barr than anybody else. If that makes you unhappy or you feel it reflects badly on you or embarrasses our cause, it's not that difficult, given how small the thing is. 
And we're libertarians. We have just as much right as anybody else to want to influence the party. Let's do something about it. So tomwoods.com slash LP. That's another link I'll put at tomwoods.com slash 1557. One more thing before we go. We are nearing the end of the year. And Scott is, uh, I always forget, Scott. Are you executive director? What, what is your title with the Libertarian Institute? Eventually, I'll get this. Eventually. I'm just director, man. You're just the director. Okay. I don't know if I was giving you a promotion or a demotion with with putting executive there. But you're the director of the Libertarian Institute. Um, you got, I'm going to give you, I'm going to hold you to this now. 60 seconds. What's your pitch to us? Well, it's me and Sheldon Richmond and Pete Quinones and Kyle Anzalone and a couple others. We've got a great site full of great podcasts. We run awesome articles all the time, originals, and also the best of stuff that we poach for Mises and other great places that you like. And we've published four books so far, Fool's Errand, my book, also The Great Ron Paul, my Ron Paul transcript, Will Griggs' excellent No Quarter, The Ravings of William Norman Grigg, and Sheldon Richmond's great Coming to Palestine. And we've got at least three or four more coming in the new year, too, that I'm really excited about. We're working really hard for freedom over there at libertarianinstitute.org. Well, I'm a big uh, fan of what you guys do. It's just tremendous. I love the diversity of sources that you're drawing the material from. It really is great. You are carrying it out exactly the way I would expect Scott Horton to, finding the best and what's good in all the libertarians out there. And that's, you know, when I had Gene Epstein on last week for Gene Epstein Week, you know, you it's not just Scott Horton who gets his own week. Also, Gene Epstein had his own week. And he was saying that I have a very ecumenical podcast in the sense that I have people from the Mises Institute, that's true, but I really have had people from all over the spectrum come on and talk, you know, because the the people who are unfriendly to me are generally, nobody's ever heard of any of them. The, the, the left libertarians who have actually made a scholarly imprint actually kind of like me, you know, so it actually works out very, very nicely. And and that's exactly how you're running the Libertarian Institute is, is you're being ecumenical in the best possible way. And that's really terrific. So I'm going to link to you guys and your campaign also at tomwoods.com slash 1557. So the, the lesson here is that it's urgent that you go to tomwoods.com slash 1557. I mean, everything that you would want to do is there because we'll have the link to the Washington Post material, have a link to Scott's book, we'll have a link to the Libertarian Institute, and we'll have a link to tomwoods.com slash LP so that you can do what we're doing. Be part of the Horton Smith Woods campaign inside the Libertarian Party. All right, Scott, thanks again for your service, my friend. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Tom. All right, folks, I'd like to remind you since we just spoke to Scott Horton that Scott is going to be joining us as a special guest aboard the 2020 Contra Cruise. That's October of 2020. Get the details at ContraCruise.com. This will be the fifth cruise Bob Murphy and I have hosted, and we could not be happier to bring Scott back. He was a special guest on the second one of these cruises, and man, have we missed him, and what fun it was having Scott on board. Uh, Dave Smith, the comedian and podcaster, will also be joining us as a special guest Dave did hysterical stand-up comedy exclusive to us on the second Contra Cruise. Scott would just stay up till three in the morning with anybody who wanted to listen to him. It was unbelievable. Talk, 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 talk. And then the next day he would start all over again, doing it again. It was just, just amazing. Just tremendous to see. So much fun to hang out with Scott. We went zip lining as part of a group excursion, optional group excursion. And I don't think I've ever seen anyone in as good spirits as Scott was 
at that zip line, every single person on that zip lining staff who would help you get on the zip line and go from one place to the other, he greeted and and wanted to know all about and chatted up a storm with. Just a such a wonderful, charming, tremendous person. And I couldn't be happier that he's coming back. So if you want to be part of that, head over to ContraCruise.com and reserve your cabin. There's a special early bird bonus uh, that's still available. So go over and grab that before you lose that. ContraCruise.com is the website. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about UK politics and what the heck the meaning of the election results last week was. I'm talking to you in December 2019. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.